You are listening to The Airing Cupboard, the podcast where the extraordinary stories of ordinary people get an airing. Phew, that's a mouthful. Welcome back to The Airing Cupboard. Thank you. Today we're going to listen to the last story of the first series, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And although I know nothing about this latest tale of the unexpected, I'm sure it'll be the biggest and best story so far. Oh la la, lots of pressure. Mm. Oh, I wish you hadn't said that. Yes, it is indeed the last one of this series. So as I um, explained in the last uh, episode, we will be back sort of late winter, early spring with series number two. And I will say just carry on following on uh, Instagram or on Facebook to see when we're starting again and it would be fantastic that if listeners are enjoying this podcast that they could maybe rate it on iTunes just do the star rating and if they can be bothered maybe to leave a review that would be amazing but yes it is indeed the last episode of this series and I've got a story today And this is the story of Kostas. Kostas is Greek. So this summer we went to Greece in the Cycladic Islands. We were there mid-August and on the 15th of August, it's when the whole of Greece celebrates the Dormition of the Theotokos. On the Greek Orthodox calendar, the 15th of August marks the moment when Mary, Christ's mother, ascended into heaven and it's considered a day not of mourning but a celebration of joy for the union of the mother with her son. And so everywhere in all the small villages, there are street parties and celebrations in the courtyards of the churches. Long tables are laid, delicious food is cooked on the embers of the barbecues, aluminium piches of resina are drunk, and the lira and the loto come out and music filled the courtyards, the ears and the hearts of all there. And we were there as tourists, and yet made so welcome, with this extraordinary sense of simple and genuine hospitality that Greeks do so well. And it is across that table, leaning on the white paper tablecloth to hear better over the sound of the music on a balmy August night, that Costas gave me his story. It was mid-September. At the time, he was living in Athens. He had just celebrated his 35th birthday. It had been very busy at work during the last few weeks. He was working there for an insurance company and he was looking forward to a week of rest in the old Cycladic house that his family still owned on the small island of Sikinos, where his grandmother had been brought up. The house was now mainly unoccupied and it needed a bit of TLC, so he was going to spend the week there doing a bit of painting, carpentry and walking in the hills. So he arrived at Piraeus, the big port of Athens, to board the ferry that was going to take him on the eight hours journey to the island. He boarded the ferry and went to stand on the deck, watching the agitation that was taking place down below. Piraeus was in full frenzy. 
engine noises, fumes from cars and ships. Trucks were reversing in and out of the belly of the ship. Cars lining up, some whizzing off or beeping their horns. People walking in, out, across. Staff shouting directions. It all looked a mess, but it was in actual fact intelligently choreographed, like a ballet, and a man in a white uniform in the midst of it all, with a clipboard in his hand, quietly directing the show. And that is when he saw her for the very first time. She was running towards the boat. Well, was it really a run? Maybe more of a fast waddle. As indeed, she was carrying a massive backpack, which made a run almost impossible. She was 25 years old, maybe? Quite short, a little round. She was wearing big walking shoes and shorts. As she approached, he could see that the skin of her bare arm and legs was very pale, and on her head she was wearing a bandana scarf. There was something very fresh about her, and she was cutting an unusual figure against the dirty, manic and polluted backgrounds of the docks. She was fast approaching the boat. He couldn't take his eyes off her. He was now leaning slightly over the railings of the deck to see her better, although by then all he could see of her was the top of her red bandana. She was showing a ticket to the staff before stepping onto the ferry, and at that very moment, For an unknown reason, she looked up and saw him looking down at her. And she smiled, a big smile, a beautiful, giving, open smile. And that smile came ever so naturally, plant itself into the canvas of his being. And he says that is when his life started. So obviously, After that, he discreetly searched for her on the ferry, and he found her soon enough. She was sitting on a plastic chair on the eastern deck, facing the morning sun and the vastness of the blue sea, her white legs stretched in front of her, her feet resting on the railings. She was looking right ahead. He could only see her profile, but she appeared to be smiling quietly her eyes on the horizon. She seemed animated from within. She stretched her back and her left hand went up to her head and she took the bandana scarf that she was wearing and a burst of brown curls came exploding and cascading down her shoulders. And she turned her head and saw him stupidly standing there only a few meters away from her. She looked at him Her eyes had the color of the water behind her and they were glinting with life and joy. There was no surprise on her face and she just said, hello. They spent the eight hours crossing together. She was American from Boston. She was a little older than she looked. She was a graphic designer and she had taken three weeks off to come back to Greece where she had been three times as a child and a teenager with her parents and brother. She had magical memories of those childhood holidays, mostly on the island of Tinos. 
and he explained to her that he knew that island very well, having spent many holidays there himself. Indeed, his father's family originated from Tinos, and together they reminisced about some of the beaches and villages and places they both knew and loved. A connection. By the time the ferry docked in Sikinos, he had convinced her to change her plans and to come with him on the island of his mother's ancestors. He was going to show her the island. And when he had asked her, her eyes had turned slightly darker when she had looked at him and said yes. He didn't do much carpentry, no painting during that week. In actual fact, he didn't do any work at all on the house. Instead, he resuscitated the old Dax motorbike that was stored in the outhouse and with the blue-eyed girl sitting behind him, the warmth of her chest against his back and her arms around his waist, they meandered around the island. They ate Slovaki in the small restaurant under the tamarisk tree on the beach. They explored the whitewashed village where the house have soft round edges and blue window frames. They walked the narrow streets and climbed the stone stairs. They hiked to the small churches and monasteries lost in the golden hills. They blue domes echoing the color of the sea and the sky and her eyes. The scent of wild thyme, warm tarmac, dust and her skin. And he remembers that moment when they were walking in the deserted labyrinth of narrow white streets. The wind had picked up and was engulfing itself in the alleyways, making the pink bougainvillier flowers fly into a beautiful swirl. She was just a step or two in front of him. She stopped and turned back, looked at him and smiled. Her curls were dancing all around her face. She seemed so vibrant, so strong, with this inner joy oozing out of her. He knew there and then that he had fallen in love with her. The week was too short. He had to go back to Athens. She was going to carry on with her trip. They both booked their crossing. She was leaving on an earlier boat. She was going one way, he was going the other. As they said their goodbyes that morning in the arbor, they made the wildest promises to each other. They were going to write and call, and next summer she would come back. And the boat went, taking her away from him. And as he stood there on the jetty, looking at her silhouette on the deck, getting smaller and smaller, he wondered if he was mad to let her slip away from him. And for a minute, he had a moment of panic. A few months went by. She was back in Boston and he in Athens. And they kept their promises. They wrote. They spoke almost daily. And they measured with amazement the depth of their attachment to each other. By Christmas, he was in Boston. And they spent a week cooped in a small apartment 
under the roofs, speaking of their future together, elaborating plans and dreaming of their lives ahead. She spent the next summer in Greece, sharing their time between the island of Sikinos and Tinos, where Costa's family had a house. And together they rediscovered the places where she had been with her family during her childhood holidays. And it was during that summer that she met Costa's family. After a lunch at his parents' house, Costa's father decided to show her old family movies and he pulled an old VHS tape and popped it into the video player. So they all settled down and sat and with joy they watched. Costa as a child and the restoration work that had taken place in the old house on Tinos. Just family memories of that summer. And then came some footage of Costa's father playing the accordion and singing. Indeed, he was a gifted musician and during his stays on the island of Tinos, he would sometimes go down to town and sit at his favorite restaurant that was run by one of his friends and he would entertain people with his accordion, playing and singing, just for pleasure. Costas remember being the one filming his father on that particular evening. And the footage show Costas' father sitting on a stool with his accordion, singing, under a multitude of little lights that were hanging from the tree branches above. The restaurant was packed with tourists and locals and the atmosphere was electric. He was playing and singing and Costas was filming him. And from his father, he went on to filming the crowd that was intently listening and watching. And that is when she saw it. There, on the screen of the television, was her mother sitting at the table and her father and her little brother and herself, her 12-year-old self, sitting and listening to Costa's father's music 21 years before. She got up and rewounded the tape and played the footage again kneeling down right in front of the television screen. And as a 12-year-old face came again on the screen, she turned back and looked at Costas. His eyes were wide and his mouth was open as he gasped in utter amazement. Well, that brings back uh, lovely memories of uh, the warm, balmy summer's evening in the Greek islands. Yeah. It was such an amazing story that he told us. I mean, I think we can say that they now live together. So she, she lives full time. She was there, wasn't she, across the table um, mm. next to him when, um, when he told us his story. They live together in Athens. She, she took quite a while to get visa organized, but she's now living there permanently. And... Um, well, yeah, they seem like they're very, very happy together. It's a fantastic, lovely end to a beautiful story we oh. felt, yeah. So, lovely. so are you starting to think about your own story for the spring? Have you started to... Um, 
think uh, you'll have to wait and suspend for that one. Yeah, we're all very excited. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. And until we meet again in the airing cupboard. Goodbye. See, see you next year. <laughs> <laughs>